We are in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, the title of the sermon is A Good Old Fashioned Whooping, which is exactly what goes down in this text. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 19. You remember last week we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem, a text often called the triumphal entry, uh, but he came lowly and seated on a donkey. You remember that we studied all that. And now this is sort of the sequel or the continuance of that story. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, reading and teaching from the NIV. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise. And Jesus left them and went out, to the city to, uh, went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that this morning you've brought us into this place, your house, to meet with you, to hear from you, to experience you, to respond to you. Thank you, Lord, that this morning by your spirit, you're giving us soft hearts as it pertains to your truth, your will, and your word. Thank you, God, that you will give us minds that comprehend. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things. Help us to understand what Jesus is doing here and what it means for our world and our lives, and help us to respond faithfully to your word. Make us attentive now, excited, and alive to your glorious truth. And we ask together that you would help me to teach humbly in a way that brings glory to Jesus. We pray it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a good old-fashioned whooping here at Jesus. He's throwing tables and he's cursing trees. This is awesome. Sometimes you hear people talk about the Bible or about God, and you often hear them sort of mention, well, you know, it's a different God in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. They talk about the God of the Old Testament being all wrath and the God of the New Testament or Jesus being all love, all wrath and judgment and all love and grace. But that is, we know, a misreading of Scripture. That's a misunderstanding of Scripture. There certainly aren't two gods, and he certainly isn't bipolar, and he doesn't change his entire being in the way he responds to humanity between the Testaments. The truth is that God has, and God is both of those things. God has wrath, and God is love. God judges, and God extends mercy and grace. And the salient point is we see God doing either or and both and is that we have to know that God always acts rightly. God always acts righteously. Whether he is acting on wrath and judgment or extending grace and mercy, he is right in those actions. And we also need to understand theologically that the two of those, wrath and love, judgment and mercy, are not mutually exclusive. They actually work together. God cannot be a God of love if God doesn't have wrath. God's wrath is wrath against sin. And if God doesn't judge sin and deal with sin, then how can he be a a God of love? For sin destroys humanity. Nor are they mutually exclusive in the way that God works in them because judgment and wrath and love and grace all meet at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, where because of the love of God, he was judged in our place and took the full wrath of God that we might receive mercy and grace from God. And yet you hear people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament was all wrath and the God of the New Testament is all love. 
And that just, you know, kind of comes from when you read the Old Testament, there are a lot of stories and there are a lot of pictures of God opening up good old-fashioned cans of whoop on people. And that seems to be relatively absent in the New Testament until we get to this text. And Jesus here is opening up a good old-fashioned can of whoop. And this is a surprising sequel to what we saw last week. It's surprising because last week, like, Jesus made this whole to-do about coming humbly. He came as a king for sure. Like, no one could mistake that. Anyone that was there was like, oh, he's coming as a king into Jerusalem. But he did so in, in really unconventional ways by being seated on the donkey, right? He came humbly, and there's this whole big to-do and this whole imagery that he was the lamb of God who would be slain on our behalf, And now we see the lamb suddenly as he gets to the temple, his destination, acting like the lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's a surprising sequel from the lamb to the lion. And also significantly what Jesus is doing here in this vignette where he comes in the temple is he's making a clear proclamation and demonstration of his deity. The temple was the house of God. And Jesus is acting in the house of God as one who has full authority. All of Israel understood this was Yahweh's house. And Jesus comes in and acts as though because he does have full authority. So much so that we saw later in the text there that the religious leaders are indignant. It means they're annoyed and confused at what's going on. They're upset by what is going on, both because of Jesus' actions and because of the kids singing. Right? And the kids were singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. And we've studied several times, including last week, that that is ultimate messianic title, Son of David, speaking of his kingship, and Hosanna, speaking of his power to deliver and save. And they're singing that out, and the Pharisees have this real problem with it, because as I told you last week, in Jewish culture, Matthew is writing primarily to Jews as his audience. When a single scripture is invoked, it brought to mind the whole passage and the whole context. So when Jesus responds to them and says, haven't you read, in verse 16, which was a great insult to the religious leaders, because of course they read. Haven't you read, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? He's quoting Psalm 8 right there. And everybody there knew that Psalm 8 was a psalm of declaration of God's majesty and glory. It starts out by saying, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so when Jesus invokes that psalm to answer his critics, he is clearly claiming to be the God about whom the psalm was written. And when he acts with authority in the temple, he was clearly demonstrating that he is the head over the household of Israel, the temple of God. So a little background about the temple in which he does this. Shortly after God delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt, he commanded them to make a tabernacle. It's a fancy word for a tent. And it was a rather fancy tent, if you read in the book of Exodus, about the details of it. And it's called several times in scripture, the tent of meeting. This is where God planned on meeting with his people now that they had been delivered from slavery. It wasn't only that God delivered them from slavery. It was also that God was bringing them to himself that they might experience him and know his love and his presence and his power. So he said like a good outdoorsman, let's do this in a tent. So it says in Exodus this about this tent. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Okay, that I may dwell among them is a salient point of this whole structure that will become the temple. I will meet there with the sons of Israel. Right, that's God's intention. He wants to be with the people and he wants people to be with him. And it shall be consecrated by my glory. God says there that his presence will be there. I will consecrate the tent of meeting And the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. So there was this um, sort of structure of service that developed around it. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. 
They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this ancient desire of God's is found in Jesus. We read in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle. He tented, he camped, he made himself present in the midst of us. So this was a foreshadow. This was the beginning of something greater that's experienced in Jesus when he draped himself in the tent of humanity and came to dwell with us. That's the ultimate fulfillment of it in Christ who brings us to God. But this was the beginning of it after it was ruptured first in the garden. Humanity was with God in the garden. Humanity sinned and rebelled. There came separation. There came slavery to sin, pictured by Egypt. There now becomes deliverance and communion. That's what God is doing here. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He came and dwelt among us, same language. The ultimate, ultimate fulfillment is in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when it says that heaven and earth will become one. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And God shall be among them and they shall be his people and God will be their God and he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death. That is the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment, the joining of heaven and earth with God's presence covering the earth like the seas. But at this time, it was just a little tent. And as Israel was wandering through the wilderness, it was meant to be in the middle of the people. Later on, it would find a permanent home in Jerusalem, and that's the temple that is in this story here. But for now, it was a tent. And when Israel traveled, the tent went with them so that God was always in their midst. And it was a worship structure. And the worship life of Israel involved a lot of things, but primarily it involved sacrifices and animal sacrifices. So the tabernacle, this tent, and later on the temple was the place where this sacrifice structure and all the different facets of Israel's worship took place. And it was kind of built in concentric, um, uh, kind of like triangles. So there was an outer court that was known as the court of the Gentiles. Remember the Gentiles, anyone other than a Jew. So the Gentiles could go there, but they couldn't go any further. Then there was a court that was deeper in that was the Gentile of, excuse me, the court of the women. And the women could go there, but no further. And then there was the court of Israel. And the Israelites could go there, but no further unless they were priests. And then there was what was called the sanctuary, where the priests would minister, but they could go no further because on the very inside was the Holy of Holies, where God's manifest presence dwelt. And only on the Day of Atonement, only once a year, only through sacrifice and much... That's all, folks. With much fear and trembling, could one priest go in there for one short minute to make atonement for the whole nation? So it was kind of these concentric uh, rectangles that moved in to the very presence of God. And, and, And the picture of that for Israel and ultimately for the world was that God was present. He was in the middle of the camp, but he was holy. There was some real separation. There were degrees of separation. And there were walls involved in the separation. He was present, but he was holy. Now fast forward to our story once again. We learned last week that it was Passover week. And we understand from that that every Jewish male over the age of 18 was supposed to be in Jerusalem for the Passover celebrating it. And they brought kids and family and all these other people. So the population of Jerusalem is swelled several times over, and there's all sorts of activity happening in the temple when Jesus arrives. And because people had to be there and come from far away, sometimes what people did, knowing that they were going up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, knowing that that would involve sacrifices, somewhat, sometimes what they did was just say, well, wait till we get to Jerusalem, to the temple, and then we'll buy our sacrifices there. Because they were coming from far places and it didn't always make sense to bring like 
doves or pigeons or, or sheep or goats or these other sacrifices with them. So they would just say, well, when we get there, we will then procure sacrifices for ourselves to make to the Lord. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And that was the buying and the selling that was going on in the court of the temple, which was the Gentile court, that outer court where the Gentiles or the nations could go and were meant to engage in worship with God, but they could not go any further. They had annexed that area, the religious leaders and the people that worked for them, to do this selling and this money changing. And here's why that was potentially problematic and maybe why Jesus was upset with what was going on there when he entered the temple. God had said that in the temple... In the Old Testament, he said, when you go there and you, you, you make a sacrifice or you make a contribution or you pay the temple tax that we learned about a few chapters ago, that you had to use a temple shekel. So it was a little arduous because people were coming from different regions and they would have different sorts of money. But once you got to the temple, if you were going to buy a sacrifice or you were going to give money as a contribution or pay your temple tax, you had to use a certain coinage for that, not just any coinage. So there were always money changers present. And the coin that was being used at the time was one that was made up in Tyre. You remember Tyre and Sidon we talked about a while ago. It was like well north of Jerusalem and on the coast. And the reason that they used those coins was because those guys were traders and they made sure that their coins were the right weight and had the right amount of silver and the right amount of gold. In other words, they were really accurate. So religious leaders said, okay, here's what the temple shekel is going to be. It's going to be these coins from Tyre. When anyone gets here, we've got to exchange their money so that they have these. And texts that aren't in the Bible, other, we call them extra biblical texts that talk about the period of this time, tell us that the commerce in the temple was notoriously corrupt. Notoriously corrupt. So that when you exchange money, you always got a bad exchange rate. And don't you hate that? Don't you hate that when you travel and you get a bad exchange rate? I, I love that most of the places we go in the world, the dollar's awesome. But sometimes you go and you and you're like, oh, they would go and oh. they'd exchange their money and the religious leaders there made sure they were not getting their money's worth. So that was problematic, the changing of money. Jesus turns over the money changers' tables, we see. We also read that he threw over the chairs or the benches of those who were selling doves. The reason that's significant is because the Old Testament law made a uh, provision for the very poor in society who could not afford a lamb or a goat or the normal sacrifices. If they were impoverished like that, God would allow them to sacrifice doves, which costs much less. So the picture then of these people selling doves is that impoverished people were coming from far away. It probably took up everything they had just to bring their family to Jerusalem to supply for themselves to get there. And then they got to buy a sacrifice because that's just the way the Old Testament worship structures work. All they can afford is a dove. And again, extra biblical sources tell us that the temple commerce was notoriously corrupt. So you know that was a $20 dove. The other possible problem with this is that the location was irreverent. It was in the temple. It was the outer court for sure. It was the court of the Gentiles. But the location was irreverent and inconsiderate and probably prohibitive for sincere worship and a beautiful worship experience in the entire temple as the noise of haggling and buying and selling spilled throughout the various courts. So Jesus walks into this scene and he is upset. We don't often see Jesus act like this. He's throwing over tables. He's overturning chairs. And notice it doesn't say that the guys got out of their chairs before Jesus overturned them. <laughs> this is like, this is different Jesus. This is like good old fashioned Jesus. This is Old Testament type Jesus. Literally throwing over tables, money flying everywhere. <laughs> throwing over chairs, perhaps doves flying, chaos. There's thousands of people gathered at the temple at that moment. Jesus is literally throwing furniture around. This would have been absolute 
chaos. And then Jesus does what God always does. He explains why he's acting with wrath and in a judgment sort of way. Jesus does what God always does. He's explaining why he is acting in such a way. And we see that in verse 13. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer, he says. Now, Matthew doesn't include a detail here that all the other gospels include, and that's in the original text that's being quoted there. He's quoting Isaiah 56. We'll get there in a moment. But the other gospels in the original text in Isaiah say, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, Gentiles, non-Jews. And this was the court of the Gentiles, remember. And perhaps Matthew doesn't include it for two reasons. Number one, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And I already told you that when you invoke a certain passage in the Jewish mind, it would bring to mind the whole passage. So it perhaps doesn't need to be said to his original Jewish audience to which he's writing. But secondly, Matthew is being exceptionally punctilier or succinct or sort of short-winded here in this whole section. He's leaving out chronologies. He's leaving out details that Mark, excuse me, and Luke and even John include. He's just like moving through this part really quickly. He obviously wants to get to the cross. That's the big deal in his mind. So for those reasons, he doesn't mention for all nations. But Jesus is certainly invoking the idea in this court of the nations of the Gentiles, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. So that court was specifically set aside for non-Jews to be able to come and seek the God of Israel. And we know that that happened throughout history. Throughout history, there were people who joined themselves to Israel and the God of Israel. Ruth comes to mind, doesn't she? Rahab comes to mind, doesn't she? Cornelius comes to mind, doesn't he? The woman up in Tyre and Sidon. So, This was a place set aside where non-Jews could come and seek and worship, sacrifice to, experience, draw near to God. That's what it was set aside for, by God. This was God's idea, not anybody else's idea. My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. When we think about prayer here, I want us to think about it in the sense that I think it's intended in the original text and, and in this text is not so much as the act of prayer that we always think of, but merely as the broader idea of worship and drawing near to God. The temple was the place where you would worship and draw near to God. There is, of course, the element of actually praying as we do, and we'll get more to that next week and talk about that more next week. But this is just the idea. Jesus is saying, my house should be a place where people can draw near to me commune with me, hear from me, give to me, and experience me. Where something real will happen in the exchanges going on. I mean, he wasn't fooling around when he said back in Exodus, I want to meet with my people. But we know that from the very beginning, it wasn't only his people, but it was all the people. God had a plan for the whole world. So let's go look at the original text that Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before in chapter 56, and we'll see that reflected there. God speaks to Israel and says at this time, Be just and fair to all. Do what is right and good. For I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Pause right there. That's a a prophecy about his ultimate coming. And John the Baptist was meant to do that very thing, right? He was calling Israel to repentance, to do right, because Jesus, their deliverer, was coming. Verse 2. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Now look. Don't let foreigners, he's speaking to Israel, now he's going to talk about foreigners, Gentiles, the nations. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord Pause right there. That's what I told you has always happened throughout history. Certain Gentiles, foreigners come and say, I want to be involved with this God of Israel. So he's warning Israel, don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. See what's going on there? 
He's making sure that Israel gets that there's a provision for the whole world in God's salvation. Then he goes on to say, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, who hold fast to my covenant, right? Those who are seeking God, as people would have been in the court of the Gentiles. Verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. The holy mountain of Jerusalem is the temple that we're talking about. And will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. There's the phrase that Jesus quotes. And there's the promise that Jesus is invoking. That people who were far off and perhaps thought that they could never be connected to or accepted by God would be able to come into God's house and find joy as they communed with him. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's the full quote. For for the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. Now, as we've learned throughout the book of Matthew and throughout our study of scripture, that's not a new thing. That's what God always intended to do. There would always be those who were included in the promises that God gave to Israel. Here they're called foreigners and they're called other. And there we see a picture of all the nations being brought into God's promises to Israel. And hence we see a picture of the church which does not replace Israel, but is brought into the promises that God made to Israel to be part of God's people and part of God's plan. That from the beginning, he said, would always include both Jew and Gentile. All the way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and forward, God said to him, in you and in your seed, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. So Jesus comes to the temple that day after entering Jerusalem as the promised king, Messiah, deliverer. And he knows all these things. Of course he knows these things. He's God. He made these promises. The people should be able to come that were previously separated from him, apart from the promises of Israel, and enter into worshiping, praying, experiencing, knowing him. When Jesus got to the temple that day, he should have seen a fulfillment of these promises that God made to and through his people Israel. But instead he saw that this ancient desire of his was being hindered at that moment rather than fulfilled by what he called robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Now, when Jesus says that, he's quoting another Old Testament passage that they would have been familiar with from the book of Jeremiah. And God wrote this to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah when they were being hypocrites. When they weren't acting like God's people. They were God's people. They were his special possession and God had done special things among them and God had given them instruction, but they weren't living like God's people. But they were doing this interesting thing of excusing themselves from the way that they lived during the week because of the temple that they went to on the weekend. You catching what I'm saying here? Because this just might be you or me. So Jesus quotes from Jeremiah chapter something, seven. And here is the broader context that would have been brought to mind by the Jews who were present when Jesus said this. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go to the entrance of the Lord's temple. Okay, this is 700 years prior. And give this message to the people. Oh, Judah, listen to this message from the Lord. Listen to it, all of you who worship here. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I'll let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. Pause right there. In other words, God was calling out an incongruency among his people. 
They weren't acting like they should act as God's people, but there were those among them who were saying, well, you go to the temple, so it's all fine. And as long as God's temple is in our presence, God must be fine with the way that we're living. And if we can go to the temple, then everything must be cool. And so there were those who were saying, you don't have to live in a certain way. The temple is here. The temple is here. Just go do your duty at the temple. God is addressing that. The next part says, but I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I'll let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled by thinking that you will never suffer because a temple is here. That's a lie. Then he continues. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe only to go back to all those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely, I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. So Jesus, in a sentence, grabs these huge, giant truths and promises and rebukes to Israel and combines them in the thoughts and the minds of his Jewish audience. Listen, you are perverting my ancient desire to have people come to me by what you're doing here, and you are living in an evil way that is incongruent and not being faithful to what it means to be God's people in God's house. And I don't know, this was written a long time ago, but it doesn't feel that different than what I might find God saying to me on a regular weekly basis. I think it's not that different from what we find in sort of popular Christianity. You know, we feel like we go to church and we do our duty and I was in the house of the Lord and I said something and I did some things and then we go out and we live in a way which is incongruent with who God is and his love for us and his truth and his word and what he's revealed to us and we excuse ourselves because of our church attendance and involvement. This is really close to touching on that. And Jesus is bummed out. He's throwing tables and chairs around. And then... He picks on a poor old tree. (laughs) Right? This is the text starting in verse 18, which is connected in idea. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road. He went up to it, but found nothing except leaves. Then he said, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Now, this is not Jesus ultimately frustrated that he can't fulfill his hunger and cursing trees. We, we know a little more than that. This is Jesus doing what God's prophets had often done, acting out a living parable. We saw Jeremiah do this. We saw Ezekiel do this. We see the prophets acting in these like profoundly, like crazy ways to get a message across to God's people. And we know from scripture that a fig tree is a picture, a symbol of, a metaphor for Israel. And everybody knew then that if the fig tree had leaves, the fig tree ought to have fruit. And from a distance, the fig tree looked good, but when you looked good, excuse me, but when you got close, it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. It wasn't bearing fruit. And Jesus curses it and it withers as a living parable and a warning to his people that this outward display of hypocrisy and false religion will never do apart from the reality of God working and bearing fruit through our lives. And it was meant to be a continual rebuke to those that he's already tossing tables from and pulling chairs out from underneath on the Temple Mount. This was a picture of unfaithful Israel. But we can't just say, well, that was Israel. I mean, we have to realize here that we are warned. That our lives as well are meant to bear fruit 
for God and the glory of God. And between Isaiah and Jeremiah and the fig tree here, we begin to see this picture emerge that says in stark terms, listen, God's people are not being faithful to God. So God will discipline whom he loves and he'll bring wrath and he'll bring judgment. It's always been that way. Read the Old Testament. It's always been that way. Read the New Testament. But we also know that in Christ, we have been brought grace and truth. And here is the truth of the grace evident in the picture of this week. I told you that we are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the cross and the resurrection. And this is happening on Sunday and Monday, somewhere in them, in there. Jesus curses the tree again to reveal the barren, dead, hypocritical religion of the people. But in a few days, Jesus himself would become a curse on another tree. He's bringing absolute truth. He's bringing a rebuke. He's saying that God has an opinion about this. And God will judge sin and hypocrisy. But then Jesus, a few days later, would be judged for us himself by becoming a curse on a tree. Galatians says it explicitly. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing, for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. So this would have been a radical rebuke to Israel and others who were present there. But hold on, don't give up yet. Follow Jesus through the week to the rest of the story and you will see that he does not only curse trees, he becomes a curse on a tree for us. And what was going on with the crowds in the court is that they were being ripped off by religion and particularly those who were being ripped off by the, particularly those who were being ripped off were those who were furthest away. I told you the Gentiles could go that far and no further. And there were lots of walls between them and the manifest presence of God. But even the space that they had was being filled with this dishonest commerce and this busyness and this crowdedness and this concophony of action going on. So what Jesus will do in a few days, if you hold on, if you follow him, if you, if you stick with the story, is in a few days, Jesus will, through the cross, remove every single wall of separation once and for all. You will remember that when Jesus died on the cross from John chapter 19, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That wall that separated everybody from the holiest place was torn in two. Jesus through the cross would bring down every wall that separated all of humanity and every nation from him. Peter wrote about it clearly when he said, for Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. See how Jesus is acting as the ultimate fulfillment of the ancient longing of God to be with his people. There was some structure around it. And it, it communicated that God wanted to be with his people, that he was in fact present among his people, but he was holy. And there was some real separation between a holy God and rebellious sinners. But Jesus, through his flesh, becoming a curse, taking God's judgment and wrath for us on the cross, the tree removes the wall of separation that we might be brought to God. And the author of Hebrews wrote then and said, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So there the author is exhorting us to take advantage of the fulfillment of God's ancient longing and desire to be with him through the fulfillment of Jesus. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, we often think that that means that Jesus is 
praying for us in some way, and maybe that's true, but I think what it means is to plead the case, as the word intercession means. It means that before God's throne day and night, Jesus bears the wounds of the curse on the tree. He bears the wounds of the betrayal of those who are his friends. He bears the wounds that met the wrath and the judgment of God. We're told in the scripture that when Jesus returns, that people will look at him and say, where did you get those wounds? And he would say, in the house of my friends, Israel, where he became a curse on a tree for us. And so that every time the devil accuses us and condemns us, Jesus makes intercession for us. Every time God's wrath and judgment is justified, Jesus makes intercession for us. So that through his wounds, through his death on the cross, we can always draw near to God. Christ has brought us past the court of the Gentiles, past the court of the women, past the court of Israel, past the inner sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies. So the author of Hebrews would also write, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because Jesus took our place on the cross and he brought near those who were far off. And you know what he also did is he also removed the, what was going on in that court of the Gentiles that day, just the, the hindrances to meeting with God. I mean, the nations were meant to go there and experience God. But all this crooked stuff was going on there. So there was this real hindrance and this difficulty. But in a few days, Jesus would bring those who were far off and couldn't through that system ever feel like they were near. He would bring them near by making the two one. Last passage we look at, Ephesians. It's rather theological and heavy, but you'll get it. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Okay, that's every Gentile, every non-Jew. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups, the church. Together is one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on a cross, on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So the glory of God's grace in the text is that we were, because of our sin, far off from God. And we have been brought near through God's promises to Israel and his work through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And we are now, all of God's people together who believe in Jesus, the household of God. And there's something to be gained in thinking of ourselves that way. Remember, that that temple was the house of God, and Israel is a household of God, and we've been brought into that. 1 Corinthians says it explicitly, I said it was the last passage, but I might as preacher lie. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Spirit of God dwells in us. Therefore, because as God's people, God's presence is in us, we are meant to, through the power of his presence in us, God's Spirit, and in truth to who he is, 
live in certain ways and not live in other ways. The problem was God's people weren't acting like God's people ought to in God's house, the temple. It's the same principle for us. A couple chapters later, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in, in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Just like the temple belonged to God, and so there should have been certain ways of, of being in it, and just like Israel belonged to God, so there should have been certain ways of them being, we now belong to God. So there's certain ways that we ought to be in our relationship with God. With God. Grace is not an enabling to sin. Grace is an enabling not to sin. We have not only been delivered from the penalty of sin, we have also been delivered from the power of sin. And we have something far greater than Israel ever had. We have become the household of God with God's spirit dwelling in us. So we have real power to be God's people. So I think part of the lesson for us, and there'll be more next week on prayer and all that stuff, but I think part of the lesson for us is that we need to beware of the tables, metaphorically, the chairs, the commerce, and the noise that ought not to be in the house. Are you getting the picture? We ought to be aware of the tables and the chairs, the commerce and the noise that ought not to be in the house in us where God is dwelling. So the question is, are are there certain things in our lives that hinder our communion with God and God's mission through us that need to be overturned? Certain tables that we've set up that we ourselves have declared sacred that God says, "That, that is nothing but a hindrance to you experiencing me and living for me. Certain chairs where we've taken up residence, we've sat in them, we've taken them as places of rest or identity or whatever, where we just know we would have a, uh, we'd be better off in drawing near to God and better off in our mission for God if he would just overturn those chairs and free us from those false identities and places that we sit ourselves. Is there a commercial sort of crowding in our hearts where we're just crowded out by the pursuit of other gods? These sort of things. This text will help us to think about in our own hearts, are the things that need to be overturned that are hindering witness and witness. Here's where we finish, so follow me. The temple was about people being with God. That was his ancient longing. And Israel was meant to be God's witness to the whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation because God so loves the world. Are there things in our lives, tables, chairs, commerce, other concerns that are hindering our witness and our witness? That's why Jesus was mad at Israel in the temple. They were hindering witness and they were blowing their witness. There are certain things in our lives that are hindering withness, and yes, I made that word up, and yes, it is now a word. (laughs) Withness. It's always God's desire anciently when he created us in the garden that we would be with him. What's hindering you on a regular basis drawing near to God? It might just be busyness. It might be some cacophony of concerns in your life. It might be some other pursuits. It might be some sin issue. What's hindering withness, and what is hindering witness? Because we are now called to be a light to the world, and there are people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. So that when we get to the end of the book... And everything is as God wants it to be. We see in Revelation chapter 7 that there is a great multitude which no one could number from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God's purposes will be fulfilled. But God always chooses to work through his people rather than independent of his people. And the fruit of faithful witness is faithful witness. So we can never be faithful witnesses in the world until we've been faithful with the witness drawing near to God that Jesus has made a reality for us. So tables and chairs in your life, what are they? What would it look like for you to let Jesus kick some of them over? 
Do you need a good old-fashioned whooping? You know, sometimes we do. We just do. Sometimes we just need a good old-fashioned whooping. God's Spirit just draws us with kindness, speaks to us, reminds us, points out those little things. Is there any way that you need to let Jesus walk into the house and turn over some junk? Do it today. Jesus is the only ultimate faithful and true witness. Israel was blowing it so hard that day, but Jesus would go to the cross and die for them. We have blown it so hard all of our lives, but Jesus died on the cross for us. He is a faithful and true witness, but he draws us into his truth and into his faithfulness. So if you need to do business with God, do business with God today. Right? You need to get on the carpets and repent of some stuff, do it. If you need to pray with someone, pray with them. If you need to confess, James would go on to write later on, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another for the prayer of a righteous person and our righteousness is only in Christ is effective and powerful. If you need to pray, pray. You need to repent, repent. Pour out worship. Just know that the way has been opened once and for all. And the goal of your life is to commune with God through Christ and experience and know his love and then take that to all the nations. That's the plan. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your truth today. And we ask that now as we take postures of worship and praise and as we come to the Lord's table and all this other stuff, we ask that this place would truly be a house of prayer, that we would commune with you, speak to you, give to you, hear from you as we ought to. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for us, that we might have free and open and glorious access to the love of the Father. Please help us experience that today and not miss it. Thank you for the promise that James wrote, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Best as we know how, with the forgiveness that we've been given, we endeavor to draw near to you now. God, please draw near to us and make your love and your power and your glory manifest in our midst. And best as we know how, Lord, we say, here's some tables and chairs that maybe need to be examined. Here's some noise in my life. It's crowding out the things of you that maybe needs to be dealt with. We ask you to do that. We give you permission to do that for our good and for your glory. 